By way of introduction, this morning we're going to be kind of continuing from last week. So last week was Easter, and we celebrated the resurrection, and we're actually picking up exactly where Pastor Jeff left off, beginning in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're kind of shifting our focus um, from looking at the resurrection to the ascension, where Jesus ascends into heaven. And so I want to start by asking a question, like, have you ever wondered why when Jesus came back from the grave, he didn't stick around? Like, why didn't he continue leading the church? Kind of makes sense, right? Because he, he, he conquered the grave, he comes back, everyone's like, holy cow, this is amazing. And I've always wondered, like, why didn't he stick around? In my, in my thinking, and maybe, maybe you would share this with me, it would have solved a lot of problems, right? He could have fixed a lot of things. Um, but then I'm not so sure, because if you read through the Gospels, you begin to find out that the disciples, who spent three years walking around with him, still had a kind of consistent pattern of making a mess of things. So you look at the Apostle Peter, and Peter was known to be one to kind of put his foot in his mouth. And so if you share that maybe with him, you're one that does your speaking before you do some thinking, right? You're in good company with Peter. And then you've got uh, James and John. And this is, this is one of my favorite accounts, is... <laughs> They actually have their mom go up to Jesus and ask Jesus to give them a place of authority in his kingdom. And I'm just like, I, imagine you're one of the, and it tells you the other disciples are angry by this, and you imagine why. And I uh, imagine they got some ribbing afterwards, but maybe that's still going on. Like, dude, you sent your mom to ask this for you. And these are actually things that help me to have confidence in the accounts that we have in the scriptures, because clearly the people who were writing them weren't doing... Uh, much to make themselves look good, right? And, and additionally, and I think this is even more important, the disciples that walked with Jesus, after the ascension, they never really lament the fact that he's ascended. They actually, um, as, as the story progresses, you begin to see them not only celebrating it, but living their lives in light of the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven. And, and so this morning, what we're going to be doing is, is looking how the ascension actually marks a, a significant transition point in Jesus' redemptive work. It's the critical turning point from Christ's bodily ministry on earth to his ministry through the body of Christ. And another way of saying it, it's a transition from him being a sacrifice for sin to the sovereign and exalted king over all of creation. And so to, to kind of see this, we're going to be looking at two, uh, two key texts this morning. The first one, picking up right where we left off last week in the Gospel of Luke. And then the second is going to be in the book of Acts. And so if you didn't know, Luke is actually the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And what's interesting is he closes the Gospel with the Ascension, and then he opens the book of Acts with the Ascension. But in both of, the, both of these texts, what we're going to see this morning, what I'm hoping to kind of demonstrate is that in the gospel, Luke is emphasizing one thing, and the thing that he's emphasizing there is the priestly aspect of Christ's redemptive work. And then he opens it up in, in the book of Acts, and he's going to emphasize the kingly work of Christ and his redemption as the ascended king. And so today, in light of that, we're going to, I'm going to attempt to draw two really important implications of the ascension for us. And the first one is this. We're going to look at how what Jesus accomplished, we're going to look at what Jesus accomplished for us as the ascended high priest, and we're going to see this in the Gospel of Luke. And then secondly, we're going to shift, or we're going to pivot, and we're going to look, and we're going to see what Jesus is accomplishing through us as the ascended king, who presides in heaven at the right hand of the Father in glory, reigning and ruling over all of the creation. You guys ready? 
I am. I'm excited. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're to jump right in. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would be present among us. Lord, I ask that you would give me uh, the words. I'm just a man. I don't want to presume to speak for you, so I pray you would speak through me. Lord, help me to articulate the truth of your word clearly. And Lord, may your spirit uh, allow your words to have impact on our hearts. Father, pray against the works of the enemy, all his works and effects. Lord, we, we bind him. We ask that hearts and ears and minds would be open to hear your word. And Lord, more than anything else, I pray that we gain a clearer picture of your son, Jesus, our high priest and risen king. And Lord, that through your word and through this morning and gaining a clearer picture of who he is, it might shape our hearts, transform our lives, and embolden us to worship you and to live for you and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Jesus as our ascended high priest. We're drawing this from Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. So I'm going to read them. You can just read along with me. It should be on the, uh, uh, the slide as well. And he led them out as far as Bethany. So this is after the resurrection. He's been with them for a bit. He leads them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So if you notice there in verse 50, it, it, it gives us this image of Jesus raising his hands and blessing the disciples. And this is significant. This is important because what it's doing is it's pointing us towards the practice that we're going to look at here in just a moment of the priestly blessing. And so this is a priestly blessing that Jesus is giving the disciples. And this is drawn, actually, I think from Leviticus chapters 8 and 9. Leviticus is that section of the Bible when you start off in January to do your Bible reading plan and you hit Leviticus, right? That's when you're like, I'm checking out. Because it's like a bunch of laws and regulations and we tend to kind of just not pay attention to what's happening there. Well, oftentimes we miss out on, on significant things and, and connections, and this is one of those. And, and so without going into too much detail, Leviticus 8 and 9 is where the, the, the tabernacle has been completed and God has instructed Moses now to basically ordain the priests, so Aaron and his sons, to serve in the temple, in the tent of meeting for the, for the people. And so they're going through all these rituals. And, and one of them, and this is where it's, gonna, where, where it's relevant for us today, is that Aaron and his sons have to offer sacrifices first for themselves and then for the people. And, and in doing so, then God is going to show up and, and reveal his glory to the people of Israel. And so at the end of this, so they've offered the sacrifices, and this is kind of at the close. It's an eight-day ceremony. So on the eighth day, they offer these sacrifices, and we're going to pick this up in Leviticus 9, verse 22. should be up here on the screen. And it says, And Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came down out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And so again, this is a, this is a parallel, right? Or, or corollary. So when, when Luke is showing Jesus raising his hands and blessing the disciples, he's pointing us back to Aaron raising his hands and blessing the people. And so we're seeing this. His hands are lifted up. He's blessing. And the reason Luke is doing this is because he's trying to help us or help us see and understand Jesus' role as our high priest. And so if you want to, this week, spend some time, I'd highly recommend reading in the New Testament the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews 
is extolling and explaining how Jesus is our high priest. Um, But notice here in, in, in this text in Leviticus where it's talking about Aaron, there's also a significant difference between what happens with Aaron and what happens with Jesus. So Aaron blesses the people, and then, it's, and then what does it say? He comes back down from making the offering and basically rejoins the congregation, right? With Jesus, something different happens. What happens with Jesus? He raises his hands, he blesses his disciples, and it tells us, and while he was blessing them, he's lifted up or carried up into heaven. Now, this is another layer if you will. Um, and so I wanna, hope I don't bore you too much, but there's another layer that's, that's taking place here with Luke. And, and so this word, uh, the, the phrase carried up in the English is actually a Greek term, anaphero. Say it with me, anaphero, right? And so you are like, okay, what does that mean? It means nothing to us. But here's the deal. For any Jewish person at this time who was familiar with what's called the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint was a, was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Just like we have an English translation, why do we have an English translation? Well, do any of you here speak Hebrew? Probably not. Do any of you speak Greek or read Greek? Probably not, and that's okay. What was happening back then is the Jews were speaking and reading Greek. And so what they did is they took the Hebrew Scriptures and they translated them to Greek. You tracking? And so any one of them who was familiar with, with the Greek When they read this term, especially connected to the Jesus raising his hands and blessing, pointing back to Leviticus 8 and 9, something would have popped off. And here's here's where this is important. Anna Pharaoh, in in one of the the dictionaries, the scholars talk about how in the the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of of the Old Testament scriptures, this word started to have a very technical sense, a technical meaning. And so this next slide, it's a little small. But in your English translations, Leviticus 9, 10, and 20, right? This is important. So in your English translations, this, this, the Hebrew word that, that was translated into anapharo in the Greek translation, we translate it as burn. Burn. And it was with respect to the sin offering and the peace offering that Aaron was offering for his sins and for the sins of his people. And so when Luke, when he says Jesus raised his hands and blessed the disciples, and then he was anapharoed into heaven, any Greek-speaking Jew who, know, who knows their scripture is immediately going to associate the blessing with Aaron and this word anapharo, which was describing the act of Aaron or his sons, literally the moment of offering the sacrifice for it to be burned on the altar. And so Jesus is being offered or lifted up into heaven. Do you see the connections? Now, when Luke is doing this, now again, this is all stuff that flies over our heads, but, but there's a layer of things here. So when Jesus is being anaphara, Luke is pointing us back to Jesus' role as our high priest. And that Jesus ascends while he's giving the blessing is significant because it points to the finality of that blessing. You see, Jesus was and is the sin offering. Jesus was and is the peace offering. Jesus was and is the sacrifice offered for sins that that secures forgiveness for his people. And so Luke, at the close of his gospel, is emphasizing Jesus as our ascended high priest. As our ascended high priest. And this, again, this week, I... 
I encourage you, read through the book of Hebrews. This is the whole argument that Hebrews is making. And in ascending bodily into heaven, Jesus is securing redemption for his people. See, our forgiveness and standing with God is made complete in Christ. And Luke is pointing us to this at the close of his gospel. With Jesus offering the high priestly prayer for him being anapharoed into heaven, he's, he's helping us to see Jesus is the offering. He's the sin offering. He's the peace offering. And he's not just one that's earthly, made by a man who's like us, but rather the Son of God who in offering himself, his offering ascends into heaven and brings to completion the very thing for which it was purposed for, which is the forgiveness of his people. This is why Paul, and we, we read this in the um, Confession and the Assurance in Ephesians 2, this is why Paul says that we have been made alive in Christ, we have been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. You see, the finality of Jesus' sacrifice and offering himself up for the sins of his people is that we are forgiven, full stop, period, exclamation point, right? And this is good news. And this is why we see the disciples, I think, at the close of the Gospel of John, responding in worship when Jesus ascends, because they catch it, they understand it, they get what's happening there. They, they fully grasp that, that their forgiveness is secure in Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, like, do you believe this truth? Do you rest in this truth? Because if you're anything like me, our hearts are prone to churn. And what I mean by churn is we're always second-guessing and questioning whether or not we're good enough, whether or not we're accepted, whether or not we're loved, whether or not we're esteemed, whether or not we're cared for or embraced. We do this in our human relationships, and, and especially in our relationship with God. But if you understand that Jesus is your ascended high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, then you understand that your, your, your position, your, your relationship with God is secure. Not because you're great, not because you're awesome, not because you do it right all the time or any of the time, but simply because Jesus is the one who secured it for you. He lived for you, died for you, rose for you, he ascended for you, and he intercedes for you. And your forgiveness is secure. And I know that... Um, some of you might say, well, hey, if you really knew me, you wouldn't say this. Because if you knew the things that I'd done, or have done, or am doing, or am planning to do, that th you would understand there's no way that God could forgive me. <laughs> like, let me be honest, like, the things that I've done in my life could fill a book. And the truth of the matter is that book has been tossed aside. It no longer counts against me. And while I may not know what you've done, I will say with confidence that God does. God knows what you've done, what you're doing, what you intend to do. And God still says this in 1 John. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And secondly, I'd say, do you, do you actually know that Christ takes pleasure? Christ takes pleasure in offering the mercy and grace he obtained for you. And this is why the writer of Hebrews... Again, I'm going to keep coming back to Hebrews. Read it this week. This is why the writer of Hebrews extols us. And he says, Since then we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? That he died for our sins and rose in victory over sin and death and ascended to the Father where he sits interceding for us. That's our confession. So hold fast to our confession, right? 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with, I love this, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we might receive mercy and find grace and help, or to help in our time of need. Our forgiveness is secure because Christ is our great high priest who offered himself up as the sin sacrifice, as the peace offering. And his ascension, his ascension is confirming this reality. And this is why I think while Jesus is offering that, that priestly blessing, it says while he's offering it, he anapharos, ascends into heaven. And so if you will, I think what Luke is doing at the close of his gospel, and I love this, it's like he tells the story of Christ and then he gets to the end of the gospel, and it's like he slams an exclamation point down at the very end, right? He's like, you are forgiven! Christ is your high priest! And there is nothing that can change that. Because Christ lived and died and rose for you. And so if you are in Christ, if he is your Lord and he is your Savior, then he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, and there is nothing in all of creation that can do anything, anything to separate you from the love of that God has for you in Christ Jesus. And so we should rest in this, and we should rejoice in this, and we should return to this truth. Otherwise, we're going to run ourselves silly trying to fix ourselves and make ourselves better and make ourselves presentable. Just stop. Just stop. Stop pretending. Stop wearing masks. Stop trying to be something you're not and rest in who God has made you to be in Christ. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's the shame lifter, the guilt remover. And so often when we approach God, we act as if God is wanting to lay shame and guilt upon us. He's not. He is our high priest who carries our shame and carries our guilt and frees us from those burdens and breaks the chains of sin so that we might walk freely renewed and restored as adopted sons and daughters of God. Amen? He is our high priest. But that's not the end of the story, is it? It's not the end of the story. You see, we've been forgiven and joined to Christ for a purpose. And this is why I think Luke shifts his focus as we, as we enter into the book of Acts. So if, you're gonna, so if you will with me, we're going to pivot now. And we're going to turn from Jesus as our ascended high priest. And we're going to look at Jesus as the ascended Lord and King. So this is in Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. Um, so there's a little bit happening before this, but... Uh, this is where he um, tells us Jesus is walking with, teaching the disciples. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 6. It says, so then, when they had come together, they asked him, I love this, I'm sorry. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So to unpack this a little bit, remember I was saying before, uh, the, the disciples were constantly kind of messing things up. So here they are again, they're like, I mean, translate this. Hey, Jesus, are you getting ready to kill the Romans now? That's basically what they're kind of asking him. And I, and I just picture, I mean, if you're in that moment, um, have you ever worked with, um, and nothing against you if you're in middle school, but have you ever worked with middle schoolers? I remember when I was a youth pastor, especially middle school boys, so many times you're just doing this, right? And I just picture Jesus, that <laughs> he's teaching them, and, and they interrupt, hey, are you going to go get the Romans now? And Jesus is just going, <sighs> and he responds. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, here we are again, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them with, in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so there's a couple things happening here. And, and what I wanna, want us to see here is how the ascension of Christ is connected to his, what, what typically is known as the Great Commission. And you're seeing this commissioning in verse 8. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And so after this, it talks about Jesus ascending, being lifted up into heavens, into the heavens by a cloud. And in one of the commentaries, it says that the language there in the Greek kind of gives this picture of, if you will, him beginning to ascend and a cloud kind of coming in and underneath him and carrying him away out of sight. And this is more than just like a inconsequential, neat little detail. Um, there's actually a lot more going on here. In this, in this reference to, the, to this cloud, there's a couple things here. So in the Old Testament, if you read through, um, particularly in the prophets, oftentimes when, when the prophets would have a vision of God, he's oftentimes riding on the clouds. And the clouds were, in essence, his chariot. And so for Jesus to be carried by a cloud, there's a theological kind of argument that's being made there. He's, being, he's riding the chariots of God. And you'll see this as well. I think Elijah's carried off by a cloud. But with Jesus, there's something else taking place here. And it's a reference to a vision that Daniel has and is recorded for us in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it's a, it's a vision that Daniel has of this one who looks like the Son of Man. And so if you read through the Gospels, in Luke, Matthew, and Mark, the Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses in reference to himself. Right? And the reason Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man He's pointing back to this vision that Daniel has. And so look with me in, in, in Daniel 7. It says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, what's it say? The clouds of heaven. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So what does Daniel tell us about this, this son of man? Right? We're seeing he's being presented before the ancient of days. And so in the New Testament, we say there's the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. And so here we see the Son being presented before who? The Father. And what does the Father do? We see Jesus being given what? Dominion, authority, and everlasting kingdom. And who's his kingdom over? All nations. Every tongue, tribe, and, or every tongue, tribe, and people. All things are now given over to him, and he's in rule, or he's is installed now, ruling and reigning over them. And so what Daniel saw and what Luke is pointing to with this cloud reference, this idea that Jesus is ascending on the cloud, is he's pointing us to Jesus' heavenly coronation as king. He's pointing us to Jesus' heavenly coronation as king. You see, Daniel was given a vision of the ascension and the enthronement of Christ. And that's what Luke is pointing us to. And as I've thought about this text, it even hit me this morning. Like, I'm, I'm like, could you imagine being there for this? Imagine being one of the many heavenly hosts 
and seeing Christ come after being after defeating sin, rising, he's now ascended and coming before the Father and being given kingship and lordship over the creation, receiving dominion and authority and all honor and glory and praise. And being literally installed now as king over all of creation. And as I've thought about this, I'm like, and, and I can't make this argument for sure, but I, but I think, and I'm hoping, let me say it this way, I'm hoping, that because God exists outside of time, that for those who die in Christ, all of this is going to play out before our eyes. Like, we're going to die and we'll wake up in the presence of the Lord and we'll get to be there for this. Because while we're consigned to time, God isn't. He's eternal. And I'm just like, as we're, and I think all the times we gather weekly for worship is just a dress rehearsal for these kinds of things that we'll be able to participate in. And so we're seeing the enthronement of Christ, his ascension in, in glory and his establishment as the king over all of creation. And in, in the book of Acts, Luke is emphasizing, he's emphasizing Jesus' transition from lowly sacrifice, he came and died. He's emphasizing a transition from this to his exalted status as Lord and King over all of creation. Jesus is no longer in a state of humility, but he exists in glory, and his, his, his glory, his, his, his majesty is no longer shrouded, if that makes any sense. And, and I think we see this most clearly, for example, in uh, John, the Apostle John's encounter of the risen Christ in the book of Revelation. So, for example, in Revelation 1, it says this, verses 17 and 18, it says, When I saw him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, look, parse this however you want. One thing is certain. John knew Jesus. He walked with him for three years on the earth. He touched him. He shared meals with him. He sat and listened to him teach. He followed him. He served alongside of him. He knew Jesus. And the man who spent three years looking Jesus face to face, right, when he sees him, in his ascended glory, what's his reaction? His legs buckle and he falls as though dead, terrified before the presence of Christ enthroned in glory. So when we speak of Jesus now, that's the one we're talking about. That's the one we're talking about. Not the lowly sacrifice, but the exalted king enthroned in glory. That is where Jesus is. That is the Jesus we speak of now, the ascended Christ, King and Lord over all. This is important. Because today, we, we are so prone to distorting Jesus into this sort of sappy, sanitized caricature. And, and, what I'm, and, I, and I don't really know how we get there. I mean, I do. You, you, you kind of, you read the Gospels and you find this account where Jesus is doing a certain thing or saying a certain thing and he comes across as really unoffensive and nice and you just kind of push all the rest aside and you focus on that one story and you let that one single story because it suits you, allow you to define all of who Christ is. But that's not who Christ is. There's, there's way more to him. And when we do this, we end up, Jesus ends up being contorted into kind of like this almost, I don't know how to say it, like a, a lovesick, pining teenager who's just wanting everybody to like him and be nice. 
that's not who he is. And I'm not saying Christ isn't merciful. I'm not saying Christ isn't graceful or gracious and, and, and kind and compassionate. But what I'm trying to say is he sits enthroned in glory. And John, who walked with him and knew him, when he saw the risen Christ, fell in terror before his presence because of his glory and greatness. He's gracious, he's good, he's merciful to all. He is the epitome of, of meekness and humility. And he's gracious to any and all who approach him in humility and repentance and faith. But make no mistake, Jesus is not one to be trifled with. Like, read Revelation 19. So John opens with this vision of Christ that terrifies him, and it just kind of goes from there. And, and when we speak of Jesus now, we need to understand that is who we're talking about. That is who we're talking about, the ascended King and Lord of glory who reigns and rules over all of creation. Um, one of the, uh, my favorite books, uh, stories, if you will, is, is Narnia. Anyone in here read Narnia? I hope I'm not alone. Um, come on, you got to raise your hands. Let me, okay, there's a few of us. Good, good, good. Um, I think one of the parts in that story I love is there's a conversation happening between Lucy and the, be the beavers. Remember the beavers? And, uh, <laughs> and she's trying to understand who Aslan is. And, and in the story, Aslan is the Christ figure, right? And, and she says, oh, so he's not safe then? And the beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. You see, we want God to be safe. We want to stand, but he's not safe, but he's good. And so when we speak of Jesus, we need to understand this ascendant Christ and King who reigns and rules over all of creation. He's not to be trifled with, but he's good, and he's merciful, and he's kind, and he's compassionate, because he's still our ascendant high priest who offered himself up for the sins of And so when we, when we think of Jesus reigning and ruling, ruling over all of creation, we need to think of it in terms of Christ as king executing his twofold purpose, if you will. And so the first one is to redeem a people for himself out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And secondly, once this work is completed, he will return as judge to bring all things to completion. And so that's what they're in, in that section in Acts where the angels show up and they're like, why are you looking into the heavens? He's going to return just as he came. What they're pointing to and what even the Apostles' Creed gives reference to is that Christ will return as the judge of the living and the dead. So he ascends, he's reigning as king over creation, calling people to himself out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And when his work is complete, he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And so this great commission that Luke is pointing us to that we read. You're going to be my witnesses, right? This great commission is actually a kingly commission given to the church to carry out um, basically his marching orders until Christ returns. See, we are his witnesses. We are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we proclaim his victory over sin, over death, over Satan, and all demonic forces. So we proclaim that. Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, risen in victory and in vindication over sin death and Satan, but we're also his ambassadors. Ambassadors. So how many of you, uh, so an ambassador, I'd say it this way, ambassador is a, is a kind of a, a technical term, if you will, or a title for someone who works as an emissary of a, of a nation to another nation. Make sense? And so we're ambassadors who are 
basically publishing or making known the terms of peace with the coming king. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or rather, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So if you have a keen eye, what you see Paul doing there is he's combining this idea of Jesus as the risen king and his priestly role. He became, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But as an ambassador, Paul is also proclaiming the terms of peace with the coming king, who is Jesus. And this is what you see playing out in the book of Acts. The church, empowered by the Spirit, goes out what? Proclaiming Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, bearing witness to what they had seen and they had experienced. And also calling all to accept the terms of peace with the ascendant king who reigns in glory over all of creation. So as we close, I want us to ponder what our responsibility is in light of these things. In light of these things. We all will probably agree that Jesus has yet to return. Right? And, and so we have to ask that question, well, why hasn't he yet? Why does he still wait? Why does he still tarry? Like, why hasn't he come back? Uh, they were asking this in the early church as well. And so in addressing these questions, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter says this. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So he waits. Jesus tarries because he is still the merciful high priest. And he's reigning and ruling on high right now, and he tarries or waits because there is, your, there, there is still yet work to be done. There are still those in this world that Christ desires to bring into his kingdom. There are still there those yet that Christ has shed his blood for, that he will call unto himself, and that's why he waits. If you say it this way, the fruit, all of the fruits of Easter have yet not been harvested or gathered, if that makes any sense. And so last week was Easter. Christ has ascended, and he's working and carrying out his plan, and so there's still work to be done. And so if you were here this morning, you would say, I am a disciple of Jesus. I know who Christ is. I've surrendered my life to him. I recognize he is my high priest and my king who reigns in heaven. Then I would say that, that, uh, that you have an obligation, a responsibility, rather, to Christ, to bear witness to what he's done in your own life, and, and, and however you can. And that, that you would, I would plead that you would take this responsibility seriously. I mean, Jesus says you're to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if you're in Christ, that's you, that's me. And all of us have things to contribute. I'm not saying you've got to get up in front of a room full of people and speak. But if you, can, if you can offer encouragement to somebody, if you can serve somebody, if you just share your testimony, this is what the Lord's done in my life, you can pray for people. Then I would, I would ask, I would implore, I would, I would encourage you, I would extol you to take that responsibility seriously and engage in this. Because we are now in the season or the age where Christ, as king, is working through his church. 
there's still yet those that Christ desires to save, so he tarries. So I'd say, who in your life can you pray for, can you serve, can you bless, can you share the gospel with this week, this month? And, and if you're like, I don't know what to do, ask. There's this thing called Google, amazing. They have videos on there, and they have all these like resources, right? Like, we can figure this out, right? But we don't because we're afraid. Well, why are we afraid? Well, what if they don't like me? Or what if I mess it up? Or what? Look, he's king and he's ruling and reigning over all, over all creation. He's got this. He's got this. It's not about you being good or having the right thing to say, but trusting that Christ as Lord will make up for your lack. Because there's a lot of lack, amen? But if he's the ascendant king, then we can trust him. And then he can work through broken pots and vessels like us and can produce something beautiful out of what little we have to offer. But you've got to step in faith. You've got to take steps of faith and trust him. There's work to be done. And I would say as well, there's, there's still yet those even among us, perhaps even today, that Christ has died to save. And so if you hear my voice this morning, if you hear my voice this morning, I would, I would ask, have you bent the knee to Christ in repentance? Have you, have you made that transition from living for yourself to living for Christ? Not perfectly, but recognizing, recognizing that you lack and that should you stand before God, that it's a terrible day for you. Because the bad news is this, we are all, every single one of us in here this morning is guilty of committing crimes against God, against each other, and against the creation itself. And if you want to argue with me about that, that's fine. I would say, well, hey, you want to reject some list of rules? Do you even follow the rules that you make up for yourself? What's the answer? Well, no. Even our own conscience condemns us. So we're guilty of crimes against God, each other, the creation. And the bad news gets worse because good works aren't going to fix that. There's nothing any one of us in here can do to make, make up for that. When we stand before God, oftentimes you have this picture of there's these scales and our good deeds are going to be weighed against our bad deeds. And if the good deeds outweigh, we get it. No, that's not how this works. The standard for acceptance in God's presence is perfection. Toss the scales aside. One bad deed deserves what? Done, right? The good works aren't going to fix it. But God being gracious sent his son to live a perfect life. He's the high priest. So when Christ came, he lived as we should live. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. And he rose in victory and vindication over sin, death, and Satan. So that any who would humble their knee, bow the knee before Christ and confess him as Lord and King and Savior, is received into God's presence, given the Spirit, and adopted as sons and daughters, and secure in their standing in Christ before God for eternity, because Christ is our ascendant high King. See, all will know Christ as Lord. Everyone's going to know him as Lord, but only those who turn to him in faith will know him as Savior. For he is the righteous king. He is the true king. And the true king doesn't compromise. He conquers. And we will either be conquered by his grace, or we will be conquered by his wrath. But in the end, everyone will bow the knee before the Lord of glory and confess him as Lord. And my hope this morning is that everyone here this morning will also know him as Savior. Because today is the favorable day of salvation. Christ tarries because he, he desires that none should perish, but that all, all would be saved.
you bow your heads, our closing prayer should be from Psalm 2. Why do the nations raise and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May Christ, our ascended high priest and king, receive all glory, honor, and may all the nations come before him and bow the knee, know him, not only as Lord, but as Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.